controller. Testing. Coming through, one, two, not coming through. Now I am plugged in and I am switched on. Everyone, two, there, there we go. All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Roland and I'm one of the pastors at Connect, but I am based at the Meadowridge campus. So I get to come over here every now and then, especially in the holidays because I'm primarily involved with young people. Uh, and so when they're on holiday, I'm on holiday as well, sort of, and so I get to be here. So it really is a blessing. Um, and just want to say a couple of things before we start. Uh, I know that you guys like to interact and engage quite a bit while uh, the message is being preached. So I've prepared a question for us to engage with today. So if you're new, it might be a little bit weird for you, but just now, towards the beginning of the message, I'm going to ask you to discuss a question. If you're new, you can discuss the question in terms of Christianity generally, and I'll explain it to you. And if you're a member here and you come regularly, you're going to discuss it specifically with regards to Musenberg Connect. Right, so, but I'll explain a little bit more, but just so that you're prepared, so you know that's going to happen, so you don't get caught off guard, because I generally typically like to know that that's going to happen uh, and not be caught off guard, so you've been forewarned. Right, um, and then also, this is some... In some ways, quite a tough message to preach because we're going to be challenged with regards to our attitude and our understanding of suffering, right? And the message title is Attitude is Everything, right? So we're going to be reading, if you just want to turn, we're not going to read now, but if you want to bookmark 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verse 8 to 18. But I want to start off by telling you a story. <clears throat> if you've studied, you'll know what I'm talking about. You don't have to have studied to understand what I'm talking about. You just have to have worked, right? But... Um, about 12 years ago, 13, 14 years ago, actually, I started my theological degree. And studying was great. I was incredibly zealous. I was incredibly excited to study. And then it started to become difficult. And uh, studying became a real, as the young people call it, a lass. It became incredibly tough and was like wading through molasses. And my attitude towards my study started to change. And it became really difficult to do well. Although I was keeping my grades up, it was incredibly difficult to do what I was supposed to do on time. And because of the institution I was studying through didn't put a time limit on when you did stuff, you could essentially take 10 years to do what was supposed to be a three-year degree. We weren't that bad, but it, I was getting to a point where I felt like I could maybe take 20 years to do it. So one of the elders in the church, his name is Lawrence Blaine, he sat down with myself and a couple of other guys who were studying were feeling the same way. And he just said, guys, I've got to tell you this story quickly. He's a contractor. He was contracted out by Eskom to build power plants, I mean, uh, substations and that sort of stuff out um, in rural Transkei and places like that. And he used to love his job until he started to go further and further and further into rural Transkei. And he, he used to come home very late on Friday nights. And so he started to really loathe and hate the work that he was doing. And his attitude during work times changed terribly. He treated his staff terribly. He hated what he was doing. He wasn't as productive as he was supposed to be because his desire was just to get home on a Friday. But because this work was stopping him from doing it, his attitude changed. And what ended up happening was even when he got home, the people he so desperately wanted to see, he was miserable with. They started to be fearful of the fact that he was coming home because of the attitude with which he would come home, and it was just this one big mess up. Until God challenged him one day when he was out in the bush, and he just said to Lawrence, he said, Lawrence, this is what it is, and it is a blessing to you, and your attitude needs to change. And so he repented of his attitude and started to look at work the way he was supposed to look at work. Something he's meant to be doing and a blessing from the Lord. And as he started to do that, as his attitude started to change, so he started to treat his staff differently. His perspective and outlook on life and work 
changed. He became more productive. And even though it didn't change the circumstances, it changed him. He still got home late, but when he got home, he was excited to be home. Family started to look forward to him getting home, and he was actually able to do what he wanted to do in the first place, and that's love and be with his family. And he said, you need to do the same thing with your studies. It is what it is. You are where you are. Suck it up and deal with this. It changed my attitude like this and my studies were done in a year. But I share share the story with you because I think it highlights an important truth and that's this. When it comes to overcoming or accomplishing impossible tasks, attitude is everything. As Christians, there are so many different things individually that we've been given from the Lord that are overwhelming for us to accomplish, but that's just the nature of walking with the Lord. Everything He gives us is bigger than ourselves because that means we have to rely on Him. But I think just universally as His church, I don't know if you can remember what Matthew or John Jesus says in Matthew 28. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey Me and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given us an overwhelming task already. That is our shared responsibility as Christians to go out and to make disciples. It's not to retaliate against the world and fight against them. It's not to run and hide from the world, but it's to engage with them in such a way that it leads them to Jesus. That's an overwhelming task. And I think it becomes incredibly difficult when the message of the gospel collides with sinful hearts. And when the message of the gospel is salt in a wound or bright light in the eyes of people who've been in darkness for a long time and we start to get persecuted, we start to suffer and we start to experience loss and grief for the sake of the kingdom, it becomes difficult for our attitudes to respond to God in the right way when that starts to happen. When you start to be responded to with anger, and mockery, when people tease you for what you believe and they scorn you, and when you begin to suffer for helping people, and the very person you're helping is the one retaliating against you, your attitude is tested in those times. I've just personally experienced for myself, my sinful nature doesn't need any help in becoming incredibly creative in ways to respond to people when I think they've wronged me. But some of the ones that I'm sure we can all like related to having experienced some of the, the counterattacks of our flesh towards people, some of, the, some of our attitudes towards people when they're ugly back to us uh, include but are not limited to bitterness, despair, biting anger, self-pity, resentment, and doubt of the goodness of God in our lives. <clears throat> Yet in the midst of suffering... For the sake of the gospel, the Lord Jesus calls us to endure. He calls us to trade persecution with blessing, evil with righteousness, hatred with love. That's what God calls us to do. And here's why. Three reasons. One, because it exalts the glory and the goodness and the nature and the character of God. Two, Because it leads to a life of blessing. And three, and I think more importantly this morning for our context, it's not what the world expects you to do. See, in the world, when someone's ugly to you, retaliate, and that's okay. And they'll often take that scripture, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, out of context and throw that back in a Christian's face. But they'll say, you did this to me, I did that to you. But the problem is we go one over and one above. 
And it's just this perpetual cycle of evil that happens, people getting each other back for doing what they weren't supposed to do to the one person in the first place. And the one person decides to fight fire with fire and it just accelerates and exacerbates the issue. <clears throat> the world doesn't expect you to love them when you hate them. The world doesn't expect you to bless them when they curse you. The world doesn't expect you to look after their needs and to care for them, especially when your concerns and your needs are the least of their worries. And so when that happens... What starts to happen is people ask questions about who you are and what you believe and why you're responding to them that way. And it sets up a platform for us to be able to minister the gospel. This whole series that we're doing is called Engage. And often I think we underestimate our attitudes in suffering and how that can be a way for us to engage with the world in such a way that leads people to Jesus. So our scripture this morning is from 1 Peter, like I said, and we're going to read together quickly. From verse 8 to 18, this is what Peter writes to the church. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. <clears throat> Do not repay evil with evil or insults with insults. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and, the ears are attentive, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ has also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We all know that the flesh is unable to respond to evil with blessing. We all know that the flesh is unable to bless when we're cursed. And so it leads me to think, or the implication most certainly is this, that what Peter is calling us to do, although it seems impossible, is possible because the Spirit of God is at work within us as God's people. And so what Peter is calling us to for the world is impossible, but through the Spirit at work in our life is possible. And so this means this is what it looks like to be a Christian. When this is happening in your life, when you're responding the way Peter says we should respond, it is evidence that you are truly saved. It means that God is at work within you. And it's, it's not just for the spiritual elite or for people called to missions or evangelism. It is every single one of our responsibilities. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, who follow Jesus, it's our responsibility to be filled with the Spirit and to display this behavior and these attitudes. Peter starts this section with the words finally. 
And it's not the end of the book, it's the end of a thought process for him. In the previous chapters, he's been speaking about how Christians need to relate to government, to government officials and those in authority over them. He's spoken about slaves and masters and how slaves and masters need to relate to one another. He's spoken about husbands and wives and how husbands and wives need to relate to one another and to submit to one another. Now he moves into the space where he's speaking about how all Christians need to relate to the world and to one another when we are persecuted and we suffer. That's what he's starting to do. It's the final thought process for him in teaching us how to respond with the correct attitude to one another. And he says, all of you do this. And what's amazing for me is that Peter, although he's going to be unpacking for us what we should do with the world when they persecute us, he begins with teaching us how as a church we should relate to one another first before it goes outside of the walls. Like many things in the Christian walk, we need to be getting it right in the home first before we can expect it to be having an impact in the world. If we expect to exhibit this fruit of godliness in response to sinfulness and persecution and suffering, we have to be able to get it right in our personal lives first and within the church, within the four walls of the church as we get together with one another. It's the same principle found in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, where where Paul's talking to Timothy about the requirements for eldership. He says this, someone cannot be an elder if they do not know how to manage their own family. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? That principle applies to us this morning and every other time we meet. If we're not getting what we're supposed to be getting right outside in the world where it's tough, amongst family... How on earth are the church, or how on earth is the church going to be effective enough in the world and have them believe that we have what we say we have? And that's the answer to their brokenness and their hurting. So Peter unpacks quickly, and I'm going to unpack them quickly this morning, what he just says we need to have as a church in place first with one another and out in the world, but first here. He says this, we need to be in harmony with one another. He goes and unpacks and says, be like-minded. And that doesn't mean we agree on everything. It just means we agree on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We can agree to disagree, but as long as you do it harmoniously. We're not all going to agree on everything. There are different opinions on a myriad of different issues. But the core fundamentals of our faith, the closed-handed issues, we agree on. And we strive to be harmonious. He says, be sympathetic. Have sympathies. Be sympathetic with one another. Not just, oh, shame, that's tough, but really try to take on and in some ways move from sympathy to empathy and bear the burdens of people within the family of God first. Let's, let's encourage one another. Let's, let's begin to do this. Love and affection. We love one another deeply. We show affection for one another. You're not just another face or a person, but you're a brother, a sister, a mother, a father in the Lord. And we come together because we share one common bond, and that's our king. Love each other because of that. Show compassion and be humble. Be humble, Peter says. This is what we need to be getting right first before we go out into the world and show these attitudes and expect to be getting them right there. And so this is where I just want to take some time and ask you guys to discuss this quickly. Just two minutes. And if you can, sort of in small groups, do this. Just two minutes because this is going to lead to our response time at the end of the message, there's a question that I want to ask. This is the question. I want you to answer it. Which one of the qualities that Peter mentions in verse 8 
are most evident here, right, that you've experienced? Which ones are you most in need of? And what can we do to change the relational climate in Musies so that it becomes, it's one question, right? To be more Christ-like, right? I just want you to discuss that quickly, and then I want to get some feedback, and we're going to write it down, and this is what we're going to do at the end. At the end, we're going to pray for those things. We're going to say, God, bring us more of what we're doing well in. Help us to cultivate what we're not doing so well in, and help us to be more Christ-like, right? So just, just two minutes, quickly, you can... Turn now, chat with one another, talk about what it is we're getting right, and then we'll chat about something else. All right. Hello, hello. There we go. Oh. Uh, harmony? Can we put the qualities up, Flo? Just one back. Yeah. Yeah, but now how do I get it to work properly? Hello, no. I'm gonna use this thing. One, two, 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 one, two. Here we go. Okay. All right, can we just I am uh, seriously running out of time here. Okay. Hey? Hey? There's not enough time, what? No, that's fine. I just want because we're going to pray about it afterwards. We're going to pray about it afterwards. Yeah. Okay. All right. Quickly, just from your groups, 
And I'm going to write it down, so I wanted you to be serious about it. I know two minutes is not enough time to answer this properly, right? But if we're doing something well, it would have come to mind quickly. So what are some of the things that we're doing well that I can write down out of those attitudes? Love, okay. All right. Harmony. Okay, harmony, what else do you think we're doing well? Awesome. Okay. Anything else you feel like we're doing well at Musenberg in this congregation? Compassion. Right. Good. <laughs> That's called swallowship. Right. So love, harmony, affection, compassion. What are some of the things that we need to be improving on? And this isn't a, like a negative critique. It's just let's be honest with ourselves about some of the things you need to be cultivating. It does, but they're also different. They're also different. Compassion, I think, is you're compelled to act and you actually start to do something as opposed to just feel the emotion and come alongside. Compassion is we get involved. At least that's my understanding of what Peter's saying here. There's this place where you actually start to do something about it. What, what do we need to improve on? We need to improve on that. Okay. So we're doing it well, but we're also not doing it well. We need to do it better. All right? <laughs> Anything else that we need to be doing better? Sorry, sorry. Uh, okay, uh, how would that fit in here? Maybe, maybe sympathetic to the needs of people? Okay. Right? And then Okay. There's, that's, the, that's like when you play the Jesus card. It's like you can't do anything else other than that. It's like the ace. The ace in Pogo. All right. Cool. We're not just going to leave that. We're going to pray for that afterwards. But uh, my time is seriously gone. Can I have a bit more time? Right. So, so, so yeah. So here's what happens after verse 8. Paul branches out into speaking about how he respond to the world. Right? And he goes, don't repay evil with insult. Don't do that. First get it right with yourself. But when you go into the world, don't repay evil with insult. Don't repay evil with evil. But on the contrary, we repay evil with blessing. That doesn't mean we become a doormat. It just means we respond to people by giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want or what we want. Paul said, Peter says this, he says, replace evil with blessing. Replace curse with blessing. Replace hate with love. Replace it. See, I think sometimes we can be so proud of ourselves that when someone's angry, like ugly to us, we haven't punched him in the face. Right? Because sometimes that's how we feel. Sometimes we want to just do some grievous bodily harm right, to people who are ugly, especially when we're trying to help them. But then we feel really good if we haven't done that and we've run away. You come at home, you're like, yes, I didn't punch that guy in the face or I didn't swear back at that person or I didn't give him the finger or I didn't do anything like that. I was self-controlled and alert 
And I knew that the enemy was trying to get me to do something evil, and so I ran away. And Peter here is saying, that's okay, but it's not the best that it can be. When the world does something to you that causes you to want to respond with evil, the thing to do is not to respond with evil or to run away, but it's to engage them by supplementing their wickedness with righteousness. That's what Peter's saying. You go, but why? Why do I have to endure that? Why does this have to happen? Why do I have to keep this thing going? I'm just putting myself out there. I feel like a sheep thrown amongst the wolves. Which is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen to us. Here's why. Peter clarifies it for us. He says, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I don't know how often we think about the fact that God has called us to put ourselves out there and to be allowed to be exposed to Suffering for the sake of the kingdom because that's what we're called to. Not only because it blesses other people and it glorifies God, but because it blesses us. It leads to a blessing. And the important thing for us is to understand exactly who the blessing comes from. Peter's not talking here about a blessing that comes from somebody else. Because I think sometimes we can get caught up in this idea that if I'm nice to somebody, they'll be nice back to me. And when I'm nice to somebody and I do something for the glory of God to that person, even when they're ugly to me, if they don't reciprocate, I'm bummed. Well, I feel like it's been worthless or useless. And so Peter clarifies for us by quoting Psalm 34, and he quotes it for two reasons. One, because it flows with the logic that he's busy unpacking in the letter. That righteousness leads to blessing. A Christian lives a righteous life in the face of suffering and persecution. But two, because it explains where the blessing comes from when you live this life. And so when we read it, at the end of the quote in Psalm 34, it says, God does this for us. God is the one who blesses us for living this way. It's not about the other person and me. It's not about getting something back from the other person or how they respond to me. It's about me pleasing God. And so when we do this, when you respond with love to somebody who really hates you, when you bring blessing and when you bring goodness and righteousness and godliness into a situation where you've been really treated terribly, it means the vertical relationship's good. Me and God are good, and that's enough. And that's where my blessing comes from. It doesn't matter whether the horizontal changes or not. It doesn't matter whether they affect it or whether they change. I do this because God has called me to do this. I do this because God has done this for me. It's a story of a young man whose boss really didn't like him. Hated the fact that he was a Christian and would outright and deliberately and overtly persecute him in front of his colleagues. This young man decided to serve his boss and serve his boss and serve his boss regardless. And one day he was going to go on a mission trip and he went to his boss to ask for some time out to go on the mission trip. And the boss said, yes, you can go. And he has $1,000 to do it. Now, that's not guaranteed. I hope you know that that's not guaranteed. It may happen, but it's not guaranteed. But in this young guy's life, it happened because his boss saw something in him despite the persecution that challenged the boss with regards to his attitude and what he was doing. We continue to serve and love and bless and that becomes a recipe for people to start to respond to us in a way that gets us the opportunity sometimes to preach the gospel. But whether they reciprocate or not, we still do it because that's how we engage the world for the glory of God. And Peter says, if this is happening, there's really nothing else for us to worry about. It says this in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now what Peter is not saying, what Peter is not saying is that by doing good you won't be persecuted and you won't suffer harm. That's not what he's saying. 
And he makes it clear in verse 14 because he says, but even if you should suffer, in other words, but let me just say you're going to suffer for doing harm, I mean for doing good. But just remember that when that happens, you're still blessed. Peter knows that by doing good and by being righteous, it's because of that very fact that we're going to be persecuted. And so what he's saying in verse 13 is, when you're doing this, who is there ultimately for you to worry about? It's the same idea found in Psalm 56 where David writes, he says, I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Well, mortals can do a lot to other mortals. But what David is saying is ultimately you can take my life, but you can't take God from me. You can't take the blessings that I have in the Lord from me. You can't take God from me. Same in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Speaking ultimately about our destiny and about who we are as people. So that's why Peter says, if you are willing to do good, who ultimately do you have to worry about? Because you're right with God. It reminds me of probably the worst motivational talk Jesus ever gave to his disciples. Ever. Matthew chapter 10. His context, he's busy preparing them for ministry. He's going to send them out. They're excited. Yeah. And he goes, I'm sending you out. They're like, woohoo. He's like, and you're like sheep. They're like, yes. He's like, and the people you're going to go to are like wolves. They're like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Jesus is like, you're going to be persecuted in every city. Ah. Oh. And then when you're persecuted there, leave and go to the next city and they're going to persecute you there. And that's not all. There's more. You're going to be beaten and killed. Your family are going to disown you. People are going to hate you. That's what's going to happen. You're like sheep. Ah. And then after this huge motivational talk, Jesus says to them afterwards, but don't really worry about that stuff. He says, let me tell you what you should really worry about. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's the principle Jesus is setting up for us. We serve and we love people regardless of what's going to happen to us. And sometimes the reason why we don't serve them is we're afraid of suffering. Jesus says, don't be afraid of suffering. If you're not exhibiting this stuff in your life, and if you're not living the Christian life, you've got to ask yourself, am I really a follower of Jesus? If you were concerned more about your eternity and your relationship with God, it wouldn't matter to you how much you have to suffer for the sake of the glory of God and the sake of others. Because you know Jesus has done that for you already. And God goes, in all of this, God cares about the sparrows and you are worth far more than sparrows to him. So do what you have to do well and trust God to equip you to do it. Peter encourages in the same way. That's why he says, don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And then I'm going to end with this this morning. He says something really amazing. And this is at the heart of what we really wanted to get to this morning. Although this, this stuff has been good. It's been a build-up. Like We need to be getting this stuff right. We need to do it well for the glory of God. But when we start to do that, not only are we blessed, but people start to ask questions about who you are and why you believe what you believe. That's why he says this. I wish there was a so in front of it. He goes, says all this stuff. Respond this way, respond this way, respond this way. He says, so that when people ask you about your faith, you should always be prepared, it says in verse 15, to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason or for the hope that you have. People are going to start to ask questions about your faith because the world doesn't do this thing. The world doesn't respond with love when it's hated. The world doesn't 
respond with blessing when it's cursed. That's alien. That's kingdom. That's not of this world. That's coming to somebody and responding in a situation not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's what that is. You're always going to have people watching you. You're going to be dealing with people left, right, and center, and they're going to be watching, and bystanders that you don't even know are there are going to be watching. And for some people, they're going to see, and they're going to be in awe, and they're going to wonder, and they're going to be curious about who you are and why you're able to do that. Some people are going to mock you, and some people are going to leave, and some people are going to call you all sorts of crazy, but at the end of the day, their lives are going to be the ones to be shown up as ungodly and shameful, and you're going to stand out clear as day for the righteousness and the glory of God. You see, this behavior and this attitude towards suffering is not just a means to an end, right? It's, it's who we are by nature as God's people. It's, it's, it's who we are. And so when the world sees that, I mean, they can smell a fake. We can smell a fake a miles away, miles away. People know when we're being disingenuous. People know when we're not doing it because it flows from our hearts. I can pick it up. You can pick it up. We know this. And the world has become really good at identifying what's fake and what's not. And when we come with genuine concern, when they've genuinely hated us, this shocks them. <clears throat> I think some of us are really concerned about suffering. And the ideal Christian life is a life where we avoid all of that stuff. But I want to ask you this question, and I promise it's the last one this morning. What happens if your ideal Christian life, where there's no persecution, total peace, constant physical health, where everything is going perfectly right, finances are never an issue. What happens if that's not the most powerful life to be living for the glory of God in a broken world? What happens if, what happens if, if it's God's will? What happens if it's so powerful, those moments where we're responding to people who are evil to us and persecuting us, when we respond with love and with affection and with grace and with kindness, those moments are so powerful for the kingdom that God actually wants him to happen. Not not because he wants us to suffer and hurt us and has malicious intent, malicious intent towards us or because he wants us to suffer for the sake of suffering. But what happens if something so powerful exists in the life of a believer and that can only be seen during times of suffering and that otherwise wouldn't be seen apart from suffering? What happens if that moment is so powerful that God has actually ordained for those times in our lives to happen so that we can be a witness to the world that so desperately needs him? In the church, we think having finances and having it all together is a testimony to the world. The world is not impressed by money, I can promise you that. We are impressed with other Christians having money. We are, not the world. The world is, they, 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 they get bitter when they see Christians affluent beyond measure. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have money. I'm not saying it's wrong to be healthy and to be blessed. It is a blessing. But I think we've got this mindset that doesn't allow us to accept the fact that God would actually allow and will for times of suffering so that he can show through us the kingdom and the glory of God for the sake of other people. And you go, who does it happen to? Who's that happened to? There's no scriptural precedent for this. And I think for some of you guys, you know where I'm going. Some of you guys, it's ringing a bell. I can think of at least one person that this happened to. Jesus. The Father planned the suffering of Jesus. Why? For the sake of many. 
for the glory of his name. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane goes, Father, if it is your will, if it is your will, take this from me. But if it is your will, let it carry on. And what did the Father let happen? Look at Paul, a lesser example, but still a good example. Jesus says to some of the guys who were concerned about Paul, he says this, I will show, speaking about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And we're uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable because we have this perspective that the gospel means everything is going to be right in this world. It's not. And I want to suggest to you that maybe, maybe, because we're, king, we're, we're, we're kindred and we're part of a different kingdom, that our king has something for us to establish here. And sometimes what he wants us to establish comes through us showing a godly attitude in times of suffering and persecution, which means what needs to happen? Suffering and persecution. And I'm not saying that God deliberately hurts us. I'm saying he knows that in our hearts there's something that must come out for people to see that will win people for him. That brings him glory. This is how we engage with the world. This is how we respond to people when times are tough. And I can promise you when that starts to happen, people get saved. And I think as a church, we have to be honest with ourselves. What am I like in the world when I'm suffering? Do I see my attitude in suffering and persecution as an evangelism tool? Do I see it as something incredibly powerful? Do I see it as something that God is going to use me in? And do I take every opportunity to bless and to praise God and to thank Him for the opportunities I have to show His glory, whether it be through blessing or through suffering? Or do I just mope and moan and question the goodness of God because things aren't going the way I want them to? And we turn past the Scripture where disciple after disciple, minister after minister, person after person was martyred, killed, slaughtered and persecuted and which they celebrated, by the way, for the glory of God. Paul even says, I think it's a blessing to suffer with Jesus because he's counted me worthy to share in his pain. And through that, through my attitude, people are saved. Are other people's lives worth you suffering for the king? And I think that's really what we've got to wrestle with. And if so, we have to allow the Spirit to adjust our attitudes in those times. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> now, Father God, I just, I want to pray for Connect here in Musenberg. And God, I want to pray in Jesus' name that we'd be people who continue to grow in love for one another, in harmony with one another, that we would develop an affection beyond explanation for one another, compassion, God for the deep needs of people, both mentally, physically, and spiritually. That we'd be a community who meet one another's needs. That we, we have what we need, not necessarily always what we have, but what we need, God. And I pray, God, where we can do better, which is everything, that, God, you would empower us by the Spirit to be better at it. Help us first to get it right in the home, Lord with ourselves, and I pray as we go outside of the church, outside into the community, God, where it is dark and where it is polluted spiritually, God, I pray that we would be a life-giving source because the Spirit of God is at work within us, because our attitudes and our perspectives are right. And God, may that be a witness to people that brings them to Jesus. May we engage with our community with good attitudes and suffering and persecution. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. Amen. Thank you for being gracious to me with time. I appreciate it. Bless you.